This meeting is being recorded. Never heard her voice before, but anyway, here we are. This is uh, episode edition 156 of the Frankenstein chat. And uh, for those of you watching on video, you'll see that we have a guest at the bottom of the screen here, uh, James Eldon. Hello, James. Morning. Hello. Hi. Um, had a few technical issues, as you can see, trying to get everybody onto the uh, onto the uh, uh, chat today. But uh, I'm glad to, you've been able to join us. And we've been trying to get you for months. So uh, at last. Um, before we go to James, just ask Stan, how's your uh, day? How's your week been, Stan? Uh, it's been a busy week, but uh, I was always looking forward to the Friday of this week because there was so much on. Anyway, it's all gone very well, and we're now at Friday, so it's yeah. a good week. And also, Stan, you're, get, you're getting a, a new suit and a new shirt because you're coming over to my house to have some photographs taken this afternoon. No, I am I'm in the same shirt and, and the same jacket. It's just me that's older. <laughs> yeah, we thought, James, that we've got some photographs for very, you know, you're asked for headshots and things like that, but. They reflect a, a Frank and a Stan of a few years ago, so we've decided to try and sort of revamp them and get some new photos. So, if what you want, to... is that is in the in the sort of COVID period, I think it was most clothes seem to shrink. There's some kind of <laughs> problem with them. So, as long as as long as the shot's only from here, I can have a collar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, James. So, uh, thank you for joining us. Can you just Pleasure. briefly introduce yourself to those who don't know who you are? Yeah, sure. I'm James Eldon. I'm the principal at Manchester Academy in Mossside, uh, which is a large uh, academy right in the heart of Manchester. Um, I've been a head teacher in Manchester for quite a long time. I was previously a head of the school in, in Winsor, Manchester, and set up a small trust there. Um, so, yeah, I'm. I'm I'm a sort of ever stay of the Manchester education scene, but obviously I'm part of the head teachers roundtable group across the, the country as well. Yeah, and also a, a little bit involved in the Manchester baccalaureate as well, which I wouldn't mind yeah a chance to chat about on this. So, uh, um, okay, so well, thank you for joining us. Uh, let's kick off with Stan. What's caught your eye this week, Stan? Uh, what's caught my eye is is that suggests, well, the fact that two separate ministers have approached Ofsted or written to Ofsted uh, insisting that they, they go and investigate a school because of a video, uh, an audio, I think it was actually, uh, of and suddenly we're all believing, or somebody's believing, that children are identifying as cats in, in schools and, and we are facilitating that for some reason. And one... If Ofsted is, as it's supposed to be, independent of government, then it should be Ofsted's decision as to whether they go into a school and not a minister's decision. And secondly, the story was, I know this is an audio, but you, you need to, they need to look into it deeper because the story of children identifying as cats and being facilitated in that came from America and it was debunked in America. It, it just I, I, for the life of me, I can't think that any reasonable person would think that schools in the UK are facilitating children identifying as cats. Mm. What has it caused a stir in your school, there, James? Have people been talking about it? Uh, I have to say that, yeah. I mean, partly there's just a comedy to it. I said to you just before that, you know, uh, I had to teach drama for a year um, here, and I said if I could have got some of my students to act 
as any animal within that, I'd, I'd have felt quite tough for myself. But I think that people have almost seen it as almost comedy, but there's a, there's a school in the middle of it. There'll be a head teacher in the middle of it. There'll be a group of parents in the middle of it. And I, and I think that th- there is the still that slight that sort of, I, sometimes these things now just catch, don't they? Social media, it's a great headline. School, you know, school has cat children or whatever. It's like a it's like a Marvel comics kind of thing. And actually, that you know, there's a ripple of amusement. But then, or, then you just think to yourself, well, what if that was me? And yeah. then suddenly, I'm having to do press, or my parents, are, and no matter how nonsensical it might be, all of a sudden, the anxiety raised, you know. The leadership in that school are going to be really tense, aren't they? They're going to be worried, and the governors and and some and, you know the families. So yeah, there's always a school in the middle of it, isn't it? That's the, you know, and I know I know that's obvious, but too often I think that's forgotten. Yeah, I, I worry about the precedent this sets now for students recording lessons covertly or editing lessons and putting them out on social media which then catches an MP or a minister to say oh there's there's a real crisis again here we need to investigate because Ofsted can't be being sent to every school that somebody some minister wants them to go to it's supposed to be independent it's independent of government so it should be Ofsted who are making those decisions I, th- I think though that that the idea of that independence is has gone, I think. You know, with, they still claim it, Frank. It, yeah, I, I agree, but you know, in reality, I think it's not there I, anymore. Um, I don't believe for one minute they are independent of the DFE yeah. and government, but I do think that they, as long as they keep professing that that's the case, then they should act in that way. Yeah, I think the broader issues, well, the broader issues of identification, and obviously a lot of the debate at the moment around. Um, when is the right time to raise issues of um, gender identity? How do schools support that? But schools also involve families. The consensual issues then around: Do schools talk to parents about this? And if a child you know, wants to identify, um, that, those are those are really complex and really challenging uh, moral. Um, educational issues for schools to, to unpick, and 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 society's unpicking those in a, in a really complex way. So the other aspect of this is it sort of slightly trivialises, I think, some genuine debates within education about how do we support young people that that might want to um, identify differently. What do we do if parents, um, you know, are, are, if a parent is hostile to that, what? So we're caught in we're caught in really a, a, a kind of mo- a, a time in society when these things are really rich conversations and, and really complex. And now the danger of this is that it it it, it just you know it's 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 a good couple of days sort of social media fodder, but underlying it are issues that education is really struggling with, and and the advice for schools around some of these things has been quite slow to come out so schools are feeling their way and obviously in that case some schools well schools are going to make mistakes or schools are going to interpret things and perhaps sometimes be behind that or too ahead of that 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 sort of social position but this you know this is sort this is just sort of aggressively 
comedic about something which actually I think is really challenging. So, yeah, it I also takes takes attention away from some of the other pressing issues that are out there, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, you know, whether that's you know, it would be nice to know what is in that uh, teacher's um, pay report, wouldn't it? Be really nice to know what that is. It'd be nice to know rather than in the last week of term or the first week of the holiday, which is probably where it's going to land. You know, these are things that's just taking stuff away from the really pressing things that everyone's facing. Uh, what about, so James, what's caught your eye this week? I think I think one of the things that was interesting, I mean, it's really interesting you said that last bit because I've just come from um, a conversation with my fantastic um, uh, executive business manager. And we, just, we were just saying that, that once again, you know, the first week of the holiday will probably be dominated by us all saying, right, we've now got to find X from next year's budget. So we're all preempting that we need to find that. But it's a, you know, it's a crazy financial sort of, you know, in probity and in, in just, in just for head teachers in particular, in just in that sense, particularly at the end of term where you, you kind of want to just be looking at next year. Now I've got everything in place. Hopefully I've got my staff, I've got my curriculum, these are the issues we're going to look at to improve and all of a sudden this can this could really wind schools and school leaders and and some of the things you might sort of be ambitious for next year we might invest in this that are are, are potentially really vulnerable so i think i think that that's that piece of it and and it's not really necessarily in the news this week but just working with some heads at the moment in 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 and around the city uh who are either new to headship or new to schools and still, for me, that slight sense of um, with the league tables perhaps being more full fat this year with, with the sort of, you know, back to more normalised um, grey band, et cetera, just that sense, again, of some angst within more complex schools about results again and what that means for the school, what it means for the head in particular and the vulnerabilities around that. And just that reflection, again, on the system sometimes needs to think, I think, carefully about how it retains and incentivizes recruitment to um, to, to complex schools. Um, and I know I know the mats are doing a lot of work around that, but there's not the system itself doesn't seem to engender much um, uh, support for that. Yeah, interesting. I, I was sort of, I can't reveal it at the moment, but I, I'm aware of a school that. Uh, a head teacher has taken the school on, and I think the school is going to be classified as inadequate. And you then think, well, this this head teacher who actually has not been there very long has this on their scorecard, you know, and actually not give not being given sufficient time to to turn the thing round, you know, and and it's this sort of idea that you know the Ofsted thing is 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 incredibly brutal, you know, in terms of it not giving any sort of consideration around, well, how much time has this person had to deal with it? You know, it's just, this is the judgment. This is what I found. This is it, you know, and, and in a way that it's that, it's that, I mean, I, I wonder now whether I would go into headship. If I could sit comfortably in a deputy headship role in a, in a, you know, effective school where I felt I was valued I never felt like that as a as a deputy. I wanted. I was driven to be a head teacher as quickly as I could, you know, not because I wanted the money or the status, but I just felt as though 
I wanted to sort of make that difference and be able to do it in a sense my way. But now I'd be thinking well, too much a mortgage would be at you know at risk and all this sort of stuff that would be sitting behind it. Would you not be thinking rather than I don't want to be ahead? You'd be thinking I want to be ahead, but I'm going to choose the school very carefully. Mm. Because the challenge of some schools means that I, my personal integrity and ego might get really damaged. Yeah, yeah. I mean, James, you could have got a job anywhere, mate, couldn't you? You know, you well, went, you went yeah, to I mean, your challenging area, went into into the centre of Manchester. You know, what's in yeah. your DNA that makes you want to do that? Well, I always tell a story famously. When I was a first ahead in Withinshaw, the school had had 14 heads in eight years. And... Um, in, I had my first ever officer inspection as a head at the start of my second term. And the, the HMI took me in the first meeting and said to me, James, there's going to be no elephants in the room. This school is going into a category. And I was, and I was sort of like, well, are you, not, are you not supposed to be inspecting or something first? But anyway, anyway, that night I came home and, and, and it, you know, it, it, the day had been okay. But, and I said to my wife, um, oh, you know, it, it, it's going to be a bit tough. This is what they've said to me. And her first response was, I told you you should have got a job in Cheshire, and it was that it was that it was that real response from a like obviously from some someone you know someone who loves you, but also yeah you got paid the bills, got to go through that. And what happens though, there's a seriousness about it, is that what happens sometimes in complex schools is that you just get this litany of leadership change for all the right reasons. People struggled or they're not right, and so people are trying to do the right thing by it. And then you just get this cycle of sort of what I call non-stick improvement. Nothing quite sticks. They try loads of different things. And eventually the staff rightly almost become a bit cynical about, well, we've done that. Or, yeah, last year we tried this and did that. And and there's a sort of piece, and I felt a a bit when I first came here, that almost the soul of the school then starts to think, well, maybe it is us. Maybe 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 we are... This is what we are. This is we're a bit doomed in this way, and and then the children will begin to feel that. So so there's a seriousness about allowing a leader some time and 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 and, and I don't know what that would look like. I mean, really, I think three to get to to really get transformational, you'd need three years. Yeah. In, a, in a couple of years, you're going to get you're going to have some really strong shoots, but to really feel the difference. But that's that's that that can be quite that can seem quite a long time, particularly if you're coming off the back of that that that, that negative inspection. Um, would, would a contextual paragraph at the start of an inspection that that talks about the leadership and the change in the school? Because if you're if you're in that position, the first paragraph ought to say, you know, this school was in a difficult position, um, has been taken over by a new leadership team. Um, so far, they've made these improvements, um, but as it stands, these are the issues. So at least there's yeah. some credit to, to what a good leader is doing in a school that's been in, well, as you call it, complex school, a, a school in challenging circumstances. And then there's at least a recognition that there's somebody trying to do something that will make a difference instead of just saying leadership is inadequate. Yeah, because something else is inadequate. I, I think, I, and again, I think is like our we were inspected in September and the school got good, which is which has been uh, the staff. It was an amazing journey for everyone. It was really it was very moving, and the team. I, I would, you know, I know we, 
but the Ofsted team actually were, were, were worked very hard to try and understand and reflect the complexity of the school. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a highly complex school and just on, you know, 60 nationalities, 40 languages. So it, by any metric, it's going to be that way. But interestingly, my worst ever inspection is in my last school, we, we, we'd gone from the category, we'd gone then to RI, and then we, we then, I mean, maybe Cockley went for outstanding. So we, we, we pitched it then, but all the metrics were in place, et cetera. And in the first meeting with the inspector in that inspection, um, she just said, I'm not interested in the context and I'm not interested in the story. I'm here to see what I'm going to see. And, and this was a school that it was all about the story. You know, the school was going to shut. It was it was literally on the edge of, of closure, huge deficit. And 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 that was my worst inspection, actually, because I just thought, well, OK, it, OK, then we're just going to play a really narrow game in that regard. Yeah. But I, I have to say, since I've been here, I, I mean, and I've been really blessed because I've often worked, our inspections often done by really senior, very, you know, very thoughtful HMI. So, so you know, I've had, I've had that blessing. But if you come back to the individual, if you come back to the school leader, then, as you were just saying before, Stan, so, you know, you've got the TES on a Friday and you're looking at some of that. The other thing that can happen as well, then, is that, a lot of that then is going to be based on your judgment of where they are in that Ofsted window because yeah. so schools can have a lag then, you know, and, and you're thinking, well, I don't, yeah, they're going to get inspected next year. Maybe that's, I don't know if that's the right choice then. And so, so yeah, the, the, there is that challenge around some of that. And again, you know, some of the mats I think are, have, you know, I'm, I'm, my school's part of United Learning, they've taken on some really complex projects that, that really, you know, well, in some cases, nobody else was going to sort of um, make right. And, and it's been really tough. But I think that that moral purpose is is admirable. And also, everybody should take some of that on. You know, that, you know, sometimes some mats, like some of the some of the sort of, you know, like, like the co-op and some of those big mats in the north who really said, right, we're going to, that's our moral purpose. By definition, then, you're not going to see some of the improvements that some other mats have if it's all free schools or et cetera. So, yeah, how we make that, how we incentivize some of that, and and you know, and and in results as well, you know, like you know, yeah. CVA may not be perfect, but there's there's no there's not much equivalent or any equivalent to that at the moment, and and again, that feels a bit reductive. Yeah, if the school changes from a, a local authority maintained school to an academy, there's no inspection then because it's a new school. It wouldn't be far-fetched to say if we've changed the leadership of a school, we need to give that time before we throw an inspection at it. Or we need to do um, a sort of baseline inspection, which is that's all it is. We, We go in and we say, this is the state of the school as we see it now, a letter to the school to confirm that, not a published report, and then we will see you in three years as as a new leadership team in the school and judge how the school's progressing against that baseline. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's the way ahead. And, and But actually, I, I, I'd still go back to the self-evaluation bit of it, you know. Well, I do. Wow. You know, but, but the other thing is that uh, it was, it, I always find it quite disturbing when, head teach, uh, when uh, inspectors come in and say, like you had at Withenshaw, James, very early on, this is, this is going into a category, you know, and, and uh, another, this, this other inspection where that I'm aware of, where within virtually the first half day, 
you know, they've decided that it's it's not going to be all right. It's going to be worse than that. And actually, what for me, I was always taught you must go in assuming that it's going to be good. You, know, you have to find the evidence to prove to yourself that it's not good. Yeah. You know, a case of I'm at the bottom of the ladder. You've got to help me get up the ladder. I think, you know, the vast majority of schools are good schools. So let's place ourselves on that ladder and let's see if I can find evidence that holds me at that rung on the ladder. If I can't, then you know it has to drop down and, and, and explain to the school why it's dropping down. But this, this idea that, you know, you may well be able to determine whether or not you think it's going to be less than good fairly early on, to be honest. I think you can. But actually, you've still got to be honest to the school and say, I'm coming in. I have, you know, I'm going to, you can throw everything at me to try yeah. and keep it on that run. Yeah. Uh, and this well, idea you that you make the judgment too early. Um, don't you think, Frank, that when somebody's made that in their mind, that this is going into a category, the only evidence they then look for is that to confirm their their already biased position. The other thing that happens, though, so if you, so, so, like, the hardest, so, like, in the kind of casino of Austin, so the hard, if you're going into a school that's had some turbulence. We've never heard, we've never had it described like the casino of Ofsted, so that's an You Roll your dice, and so if, so in that the first year of change management in a school that's been through some difficult times is really going to be hard because you're saying, hey, this could be, there's a new promised land and this could be the future. And and a lot of people will be looking at you like, I always felt when I first read it, they're like, oh, yeah, all right, mate. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> um, and then you get to like November and they're like, oh, well, he's still here. Right, thanks for that, mate. And then by February, you, you have got a little bit more traction. Like, okay, that you've done six months now, nearly well done. But that first part of it is just, it's that kind of Woody Allen bit of 99% of success is turning up. It's mm-hmm. just that bit of you're in every day. You're looking, and, and there's going to be lots of days where you know it's probably, it feels sometimes it's gone backwards. It's not, you know, yeah. it's not that you're having success. It's the fact that you're just holding a line for a bit. And then gradually you get those wins and you get that little shift in culture. But those are such delicate times. So in my, so here, also came in my first year in March and we were really, the team was very, very, I have to say, and the lead HMI was very, very good. And, and basically really backed. So we got our eye then with good leash management but the, the team really backed what we were trying to do. So they did do that little bit of, it isn't, we, we can see, of course, it's not all in place, but the, the, the line of travel and the ambition and what you're doing to get there is right. So, so we back you, really. Here's yeah. an endorsement which says, yeah, you keep doing this, and we think this is going to transform and this is going to improve. And, and, and obviously, with a lot of work from all the staff, that, that happened. But... If they come in a different, cold, if they'd come in even a couple of months earlier, which would have been, you know, maybe at the end of my first, t- you, what, you haven't got that evidence. You can't, you can't demonstrate that. So then you're playing against the house then. You, you haven't got, you know, you haven't, you haven't built up enough chips to, so, to, to fight back and to, and, and, to, and to have that challenge within it. And that's the thing that when I talk to heads around, when they're talking about Ofsted, I'm, I'm always a bit like, right, okay, well, when, when do you think it's coming? Right, let's work back. Now we need to stack a few things in your favour either really quickly or there's a bit more time, actually. You can do the because that's, that's what's sad is that sometimes they come in and, and like what's embryonic is, is, is just, it's just rolled over because 
by definition, it's, of course, it's not embedded yet. It, it's, it's very, very fragile. Those first few years, that first year in particular, everything's fragile, isn't it? You, yeah, yeah. you, you yeah. and you, you lose, some, you, you're going to lose some, some battles as well. So that it's that fragility that's 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 scary. And the the outcome of inspection will identify areas that may not have been on the embryonic thing, and and then Absolutely. what you've developed, what's starting to grow, is destroyed because suddenly everything's got to shift to what the view of a, a group of inspectors have decided is the most important thing for the school. And and I, I will say, I had a um, head of children's services who came in uh, to the authority that I was in at a time where the team that I was leading, and it was the team, not me, had done a fantastic turnaround of, of a system from losing, it was a, a traded service, it had lost two and a half million in three years to better than break even and making a small surplus and the first thing she said to me was i'm not interested in the past i'm not interested in in what they've achieved i'm interested in in you know today and what's happening today and for the staff that had had a fantastic achievement it was like coming in and slapping each one of them in the face it, it was well, if you're not interested, yeah. we're not working. There's another problem as well. So here's the other issue with the casino, okay? If you are working in a complex school, by definition, like I, I, I'm rarely out of school because the school needs every the, the school needs everybody to be passionate and involved with the school. That's that's where it's at. So by definition, it's much less likely that I might want to become an Ofsted inspector if that's what I wanted to pursue. Yeah because I live and breathe my school and my school demands that of me and that's my job. So what you will also get is that um, sometimes the, the, the people that make the house rules are the people in schools that are, can facilitate them having that capacity. And therefore, quite often you'll get in, you're, you're very rarely getting a team somebody that comes through the door apart from often the HMI, often the HMIs are the, are the best people because they've, they've had that time around the, those different schools, not just as an inspector, but as, as an improvement thinker and piece. So it's, it's what I then call golf club syndrome that sometimes inspectors walk into a school and they look like they've come off a golf club. They look, they look a little bit terrified because they say think they're in a city school and and you're a bit like, and you, and you, and yeah, you send judgment of some of what we do, which is going to be different from what you do in your context. And, and, and it's, and it's really hard. I, you know, I, of course, there must be, there's urban leaders that, that will be inspectors and they'll have some of that. But, and I, I imagine that's, that's, a, that's a percentage wise, that's a lot less. If I just think of Manchester, um, as you know, the working heads of Manchester, very few, if any, are, are inspectors because their schools you know, they demand high level, high presence leadership. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, and it's... also you've got to be of a, of, a, of a certain grade before Ofsted will allow you to, so, to become yeah. an inspector. So again, that, that undermines the chances of people who will, who lead schools in challenging circumstances being able to share that experience and yeah. knowledge and understanding with other inspectors to, you know I, we were fairly fortunate when Frank and I began the inspection because 
HMI hadn't done much inspecting in this in that way. And so the person who was leading us was asking us our view, our opinion. What do you think of that? Is this typical? Is is this what we should be seeing? And that was great because she obviously learned a lot from I mean, we learned a lot from her, but, but she learned a lot from us by yeah. asking, is this typical of a large primary school? You know, is that the kind of behaviour you would expect to see as mm. we were five five primary head teachers at the time? Yeah. I, 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 as somebody who was a big advocate for head teachers getting involved in inspection, um, I'm less enthusiastic on it now than I was. Um, and having experienced that, uh, and call it out now, but a Cub Academy leads, you know, it's that, that, that school is incredibly complex school. It's a good school now. Um, and the, uh, one inspection where Johnny Mitchell was the head got good leadership, but it, it deserves so much more than that. And the reason why I didn't get it is because actually the inspectors were not aware of what they were inspecting. You know, because actually I had, I've inspected a lot and seen a lot, but I've not seen a school quite as complex as that. And, you know, to bring somebody in from a local grammar school into that scenario as an inspector is simply not good enough, you know, and uh, the school suffered for it. And uh, that led to Johnny moving on, which is, for me, quite sad. But anyway, um, what's caught my eye this week? Cricket. Um, So... Uh, there was a report come out around uh, EDI and cricket. It's It's been rumbling for about two or three years. Um, but it's a very lengthy report uh, and basically scythes away at the current cricket structure and the opportunities or lack of opportunities for um, young people and for adults to get involved in cricket in some in some areas of the country and in some sort of particular clubs and and it sort of made my brother um who he and i were very keen cricketers he played at a slightly higher level than me but we played together regularly in essex and we we came from quite a poor family where we had no no new cricket stuff given to us it was always either the clubs or it was from players who were retiring and whatever um i remember the first pair of cricket boots I got were in my mid twenties. Um, you know, and, and my brother and I were talking about it this week about, you know, it's in a way, a lot of the focus has been around uh, black cricketers, women's cricket, but actually there is a, a quite a significant section about you know, poverty, poor, poor kids playing cricket. And, and the problems, if you've got, if you are a good cricketer and um, the, the pathway to get into the elite side of it is not funded. So your parents or your carer or your mum, your dad, whoever it is, will have to fund you to get you to various events, various matches, various tournaments. There's no financial support whatsoever. So on top of the costliness of it, the fact that, as you were saying before we we uh, we uh, broadcast it or recorded it, that where you are, there's just not a lot of green spaces there. You know, you, yeah. can, you can play, I mean... There, I mean, what, when I drive in on uh, past Southern Cemetery there, there are a number of parks on the left-hand side, and often you will see informal cricket matches being played in the evenings. You know, there's a lot of cricket being played, but it's not in that structured environment. These are just young men and women who want to play cricket, and that's great. But actually, there needs to be much more than that, and they need to be integrated into a club structure so that actually if there is a talented young um, boy or girl there, 
they've got an opportunity to be sort of wrapped up and captured within the club structure so that they can then move on to a higher level. Um, so it's, I was really heartened by the fact that it didn't just focus on gender or race or whatever. There was a real thing around poverty uh, and how that impacts on getting involved in cricket. I think every, every school I was in, uh, I, I was the instigator of cricket, and this is in Salford. But th- th- there's a wider problem in, in that cricket isn't isn't the first choice game for for children in the city Salford. And so when I'm saying things like, "Well, you you need to go and do some practice. We've got a game, you know, practice at, at the at the weekend." You know, we haven't got a bat, Mr. Johnson. Right. Well, you know, here's a couple of bats from the school stop. You, you look after those and then maybe all your friends can come round and you can, oh, no, we can't. We can't go on their street at night because we'll get beaten up. It's a different it's a different yeah. street. And yet when I was in Lancashire working in Accrington, you, you talk about people playing on uh, on a bit of green. In in Accrington, Asian lads are playing on car parks. They're playing, yeah. on, and it's mm-hmm. cricket. It's nothing, you know. You drive along the road, and you can look down back alleyways and see groups of Asian lads playing cricket. But I suppose Lancashire has got uh, probably a stronger cricket link than, than Salford had. But but we we had cricket leagues. We had we had competition between schools at primary level, but then it dies. Mm. And that's the problem. Is like parents. No, per- because as, as well as the cost of equipment, there's the cost in time for parents. And and that's very, very hard for a parent to say, right, I'll, I'll take you to, to a, a game. I'll take you to a club. I'll pick you up from the club. You know, maybe we can borrow some equipment. And there just isn't that desire. Well, yeah, cas- cascade it out from the school level. So cricket amongst some of our community is is the is the premier sport. So we are we have a slight advantage. There's a buy into it. So we we've got a brand new AstroTurf um, pitch which we did in conjunction with Man United. And so the king of sport football, the football. And when I say that's king, it's so dominant in that. So you know I'm a big cricket fan, but football, so football serves. So then we've got a field. Last year in the drought and the 39 degrees um, temperatures, our field died. I mean when I say like it was it was. It was like it, 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 the, the grass went. So it grew back um, like a kind of a, a dandelion memorial to what was there before. <laughs> so, so in cricket terms, so I could build, and we looked to put an artificial strip in somewhere. So you could get so you can get a bit of all around. So there's still work around some of that. But it's quite luxurious for a school with just a field because obviously even a cricket strip, you're going to get a batsman, bowler, wicket keeper, maybe a few fielders, but it takes quite a lot of space. So... so School cricket is quite difficult um, in in a school where you've got some good outdoor space, but you, it's not luxurious. So then a child's good at cricket and they say, OK, so around us, you have to go quite a way to outside of to the edges of Manchester. I think here Didsbury is the first where you've got a formal cricket club. And then when you get to the formal cricket club, um, you've got to then be able to you know get into the equipment issues around some of that as well. The other thing that happens with cricket is that it's it's really geographically spread. So petrol, you, you, I mean, a lot of our families won't need cars because they they're right next to really good public transport networks, and that's and that works day to day well. But if you suddenly got to go to somewhere in East Cheshire for a match 
or you've got to go up to Bolton wait for a match. Those things become really prohibited. So there's there's a need to look at that. There's a really thriving and, and quite a lot of my um, students really enjoy uh, indoor cricket yeah. scene and league. And there's real, there's real, I think there's, and then it's a really exciting game. It's really fast um, and, and you don't need that much space with it. So like a sport, school sports hall is perfect for that. And, and the purists might, you know, obviously wince a little bit and for that, but it's a really, it's a really sort of action packed game. So there's there's scope to rethink some of those things, but it, it, you know, I, I looked at the cost of, and I, and I can't remember the exact figure, but the cost of reseeding and regrowing my school field, and then obviously if I do that, I've got to basically shut it for for however months is, and it's just it was it was crazy. I said I can almost put an artificial pitch in for the cost of doing that. <laughs> so so there's a lot of barriers around school sport etc so we like cricket and rugby were two were interested because because the field became really dried out really hard rugby became really difficult and and cricket cricket need demands quite a lot of space but here's another thing that i think we really need to look at is the link between you know some of our some of our independent schools within the city etc have got some quite amazing cricket facilities and then there there has to be a, a continuing partnership there to allow access to that space because few few state schools are ever going to have the space or the money to build really tailor-made cricket facilities. And so you're going to have to have some real anchor schools, some hubs that allow other schools to come in and experience a proper square, a proper outfield, et cetera. Um, And and the problem is, whilst all that's happening, football is such a dominant cultural force at the moment. That it just it just cricket just slightly withers a little bit in yeah, in the yeah. scheme. Sadly, anyway, I'm going to move on to because I'm conscious of the time. I just want you to talk briefly, uh, James, if you wouldn't mind about the Manchester Baccalaureate that I yeah. we met recently when you were presenting with Andy Burnham and one or two others um, in Manchester at the launch. I mean, what's the thinking behind it, and how much traction are you getting? So uh, yeah, and, and there's not much else to. I'm, I'm not. Uh, this is this has really come from Andy, and and at the moment I think it's quite. Um, it, it, it's in quite an early stage, but what really spoke to me about it was that we in in, in my previous school and and uh, uh, MA, we we've always branded our non eback um, suite as the MBAC because. I said in the, in the thing when I first here when I arrived there was we, we really built up the eback um, pathway so that our um, uh, the students that was right for really had an opportunity to get to that so everyone got that I never did and then then people sort of said oh what what about the rest of the students so there's quite a large group there that's not come. and then I sort of said well we need to think about and and I didn't say anything I just said well, what should we call them and and somebody said oh, we're just calling them the non eback. And I thought, like that's that's wow, you know, what a great. <laughs> you you're the not in the club people. <laughs> and so what Andy's doing, I think, really spoke to me in the sense that that there's a it, there needs to be a really strategic thinking about that 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 group of children that either don't want to or is not the right pathway for. And the other thing I think that he's really trying to capture, which is which is really complex, is that if your child is um, is going to do as EBAC, A-level university, 
it's a really predictable pathway in terms of you know what the next steps are. There's a lot of challenge in it, and obviously it's not easy sometimes to get onto those next steps. But it's a very, very um, well rehearsed and and well structured regime. UCAS, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So when families don't want students don't want that pathway, or it's not the right pathway, it's such it's such a more complex field. So when we do our parent information evenings for, I've got one in a couple of weeks for my current year ten, and we start to talk about what it looks like in year eleven and different pathways because we we don't have a sixth form. The A-level bit is quite straightforward. You can almost gallop through that. But when you come out of the other bits and you want to talk about um, uh, apprenticeships, degree apprenticeships, um, different um, access to different um, uh, employer opportunities, it's such a more disparate field. And it creates, understandably, more angst within families because it feels, it feels more um, tenuous. It feels a bit like... Will we get this? And we don't know. We don't. We can't always guarantee some of those things. So I think Andy trying to bring it together and and you know his sort of sense of creating a UCAS for some of those other pathways. So say an apprenticeship, a degree apprenticeship, has that same um, uh, sort of systematic design around it is is a really valid piece. It isn't easy, and I think that there's bits within the current. You know, I think that for example, the MBAC is going to have to be Progress Eight compliant because otherwise schools aren't, 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 aren't going to go near it. But, you know, I, I, I'm still, I remember when we launched the diplomas, I was part of a group that did the diploma work for Manchester. And there's been, the, the traction around this area is never quite stuck. Yeah. I think the T-levels are great. I think they, a lot of our students are really engaged with those. I know they're really complicated at an FE level, but as an aspiration, I think, they're getting more and more buy-in from the children. So I think that trying to sort of articulate what it means if you don't want to go to university or, or that's not right is really is brave and ambitious, but there's there's loads of pitfalls and complexity in it. I, I, don't, I don't underestimate yeah. maybe So uh, Andy was talking, though, about implementation being sometime in 2024. Is, does that feel optimistic at this stage I, I think i think at some level it is i think if the thing with it the thing with this is was what I, what I think you've got to be a bit careful is that this isn't necessarily about i think at a school level most schools are doing some of this this piece it's the transitional points at 16 to 18 and 18 to um, employment or to apprenticeship that need just some some sort of organisation and 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 an alignment really in terms of some of that. And again, that sounds straightforward. That, that will be complex. And, and with friends who lead some of the BFE colleges in, in 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 the city, that that is more difficult, particularly if you're not an A level provider. Yeah, yeah. But if you come at it at the level of a parent, and you're you're saying right, okay, well. I, you know, he doesn't. My, my son, my daughter doesn't really want to go to university. He, he he's looking at something different, right? So that it there's a lot of research and background work that is necessitated then for the parent to do to kind of be able to enforce that, and and by definite that and that, that that's more difficult for some families, you know, language issues or just you know some things you know there's some things are dressed up as apprenticeships when they're not then they don't have that real quality training aspect with it 
So it's a minefield that 2024 is probably is, is ambitious, but I think if you don't set that marker, we're not going to we're not going to move towards it. No. We always end these chats with our guest offering some sort of change that they would like to see. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, uh, tweaked this, James, but I don't know if you've had thought, thought about what that might be. Um, I, the, the change I would like to see it, 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 within, within broader education is I would like to see um, genuinely uh, school trip support from a range of different providers that understand that when I take a trip out, I'm financing probably 80 to 90% of that trip. Mm. And, and, and my parents are really generous. They're really committed. But many of the families, particularly mom, just can't afford to be generous in that donation. Whereas other schools will get 80, 70, 80% of that donated by, by, by parents. Yeah. And then, and because there's very little flexibility when you phone up some of the big attractions or you, you're trying to negotiate things and say, well, in fact, there isn't any, you know, it's, it's like, well, this is the, this is, you know, there might be a student fee. Yeah. Whether or not it's a premium, like, um, rate, whether or not it's something like that, because the cost of transport is already really high now for school trips. And, and there's a real danger of an us and them piece around access to education with character and the, and the enrichment of that, because schools, schools where you're really paying for a lot of that, by definition, are, are, are going to have a, a less a less sort of yeah. um, open range of opportunities, and and that goes you know and that, then going abroad or something like that is is a whole other step. So some sort of scheme or system which allows schools to have access to you know some money or some sponsorship or some help to facilitate taking children on um, trips out of the country, because at the moment. That's, that's that's unrealistic for, yeah. for, yeah. for it's it's in a different time now but when i was ahead we managed to get various industries local to to put money into a fund which was for school visits and it was separate from school funds separate from the school's money and and they were i mean it's less so probably now but they were keen to do it almost without worrying about what the school was doing with that money because it, you know, we we also linked it to the work we were doing with industry, so that that um, enterprise and stuff was all into that that budget. But it, it's still it's still difficult, and and I'm passionate about children going out and seeing seeing and experiencing things, not doing all their learning in the classroom. And I, I do think the the transport bit is one of the biggest problems at the moment because of the simple cost of just getting children. You know, even if some of these places you want to visit said, okay, well, we'll do it for you for the lowest price we've ever done it for, you've still got to get them there and back. Yeah. And that's significant. Cost. I'm going to bring it, I just, we'll end with Kevin Collins. I mean, I think that 15 billion, some of that was on that cultural capital stuff, wasn't it? You know, yeah. in way, yeah. we're, we're suffering from the lack of investment, I think, post-pandemic. I'm feeling it. In the, in the areas that I'm supporting um, and the families that it's little surprise that some kids are finding getting back into school now very challenging, you know. Um, but, you know, we've nearly gone on for about 50 minutes, which is about 20 minutes longer than we normally do. Uh, James, can I thank you very much for your time yeah, today? And, uh, and uh, yeah, we're back next week with a, another guest. We've got a couple of weeks before we close for the summer, but uh, 
hopefully, James, your results and everything land well this summer. Um, fingers yeah, crossed. Yeah. And thank you very much for your time. And we'll see you, you see you all next week. So take care, everybody. Bye bye.